This is Our Common Ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Black History Month is um, a commemoration, vocab word, for black activists, another vocab word, who took, we celebrate black people that helped us change history. It reminds us to be strong, even in politics. Oi. Black history is important to me because I have to remember where I came from and I have to remember who came before me. Because you have to look at the things that Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, and um, Malcolm X did for us black people so people can't treat us unfairly because they think some type of belief. It doesn't matter if you're black, if you're white, you should always celebrate it because you know the, the, the struggles black leaders went through in order for you to be here right now. Black History Month 2021, and here at Our Common Ground, we celebrate. Welcome to our Our Common Ground Black History Special, the history of black political movements in America. This is a four-week lecture series 
on the history and interchange of black political movement and progress each Thursday, 8 p.m. with Dr. James L. Taylor. Sit back, nerd, and liberate. Thank you for joining us. And now, Our Common Ground is honored to present Professor, Author, Chair of the Department of Politics at the University of San Francisco, Dr. James L. Taylor. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Welcome to Our Common Ground. Uh, we want to, uh, first of all, thank um, uh, Ms. Graham and, uh, and uh, all of those who are listening uh, for being here. Um, I'm looking forward to this uh, series of, of lectures and, um, and hope that uh, it's instructive and, and informative. Um, I tend to be a, a, a professor that, or a person, I guess, who goes into a lot of depth of what I talk about, uh, so it's often layered, and uh, a lot of times it, you know, may be uh, densely packed. So I beg your pardon and ask you and encourage you uh, to take notes, um, like you would if this was a Dr. Ben or um, you know Henry, John Henry Clark or uh, Maulana Karenga or uh, Malife Asante or Manning Marable or Cornell West or any of the great scholars. Um, you know, any of the great women scholars that we have, um, you know, uh, someone like Melissa Harris, uh, Lacewell Perry, um, you know, there are many scholars that are sisters of mine in uh, the National Conference of Black Political Scientists, which is the leading uh, organization of black political scientists in America and, and has been. It's an independent black organization of scholars who have their roots in uh, Ralph Bunch uh, as the dean of the Howard University School of Political Science and also at Atlanta University. Uh, these are the places where political science was born for black people in America, at Howard and at Atlanta University. Unlike black studies, which was born at white universities, um, fighting to get in, um, black sociology, black history, black politics from the larger disciplines, the established disciplines, they were already uh, in the black colleges. So uh, a field like political science was at HBCU when black studies was at San Francisco State University. Um, and that's one of the things I think, you know, when I talk about our development and our, our people as a, as a movement phenomenon, um, that, you know, people appreciate that kind, of, that kind of texture and quality so that um, the things that I try to talk about and, and uh, share with my students are um, what I think are critical, um, you know, literatures, scholarship, um, and, you know, and important questions to raise. So I would encourage you, um, if you have young people 
in your family, a young person who's in their teens, um, you know, a young person who's 19, 20, 21 years old, kind of lost and trying to figure out what's up, maybe you put the the radio where or the radio or the phone in this day and age uh, where they can at least hear it. And and hopefully there'll be something provocative that um, stirs them over the next four weeks um, to want to to follow us. Um, my students pay sixty-five to seventy-five thousand dollars a year to listen to me. So what I'm sharing with you, I've taught at University of California at Berkeley, the top public school in the, in America in the African American Studies and Diaspora um, and uh, Diaspora Studies Department for six years, up until two two or three years ago. Um, I taught my book at Berkeley. I taught Black Nationalism at Berkeley. I've taught in Madrid, Spain, in South Africa, um, and in Paris, uh, in, Fran- in France, excuse me, uh, and um, you know, taught for St. Louis University, for the University of San Francisco at Pepperdine. I taught at USC um, when I was a graduate student. So I've been teaching for quite a long time. Uh, my book on black nationalism won a national award um, by the American Library Association. It was rated the top a book in its category out of uh, 25,000 books. It has not been popular because in the academy today, people like me are not popular. People like me um, don't have a following because I don't say um, the popular um, sort of faddish things, and I refuse to sell out uh, to be a part of something that is not really a part of me. Um, I'm a black man in America. My mother raised me uh, as a working-class poor black woman, uh, raising seven kids on her own um, in the projects of New York. Um, After my grandfather, who owned his home, brought her up to the north from South Carolina during World War II, like a lot of other black folk. That's the root of our story, that black migration. That's, that's a really important part of our history that we all just sort of pass over. And I would really encourage us, uh, next week we'll be talking about a bibliography, but one of the books I'll give you, an article I'll give you a hint to, and it's hard to find, but I'll, I'll make it available. It's called Black and White. Lessons for the Next Stage uh, by Harold Cruz. Uh, it got serialized in uh, Negro Digest and Black World in January and March and May of 1971. It was three parts of a, that was going to be Cruz's next book after uh, the crisis of the Negro intellectual. That book was going to be called Black and White, Lessons for the Next Stage. And in that book that never happened, but did get published as a series of journals in 1971, Harold Cruz points to uh, the deep black uh, spiritual culture that is the root of all of the black experience in America, no matter what we've gone through, at what stages. He says our spiritual culture has been our main culture and our salvation. And if you really go back and think about the first major literate expression to about black life in America, it was W.E.B. Du Bois. And I just got finished teaching my class earlier, and those people paid to hear me say that W.E.B. Du Bois's book, The Souls of Black Folk, is almost the beginning of movement consciousness 
amongst black people, period. David Walker had written the appeal in the 1830, but Du Bois, uh, with his educational credentials at Harvard and ties to the later NAACP uh, and writing in the crisis, uh, Du Bois uh, himself uh, in the souls of black folk really sets the track and path for the next 100 years of black struggle and we seem to have misunderstood what he was saying because uh, another scholar says that a way to interpret Du Bois's use of the term of folk in the 1903 book Souls of Black Folk is that the word folk like Volk as in Volkswagen uh, the Volksgeist um, the Volk of the German people uh, should be souls of the black nation. So another title, proper title for Du Bois's 1903 book would be Souls of the Black Nation. This book was actually responding to two popular racist books written by a racist um, named T.H. Dixon, whose book was The Klansman with a small C, not a K, and uh, I'm sorry, with a C, not a K, and The Leopard Spot, The Leopard Spot, that was published in 1903. Du Bois is responding to this, but he's also responding to this terrible caricature of black people during the Reconstruction period by the University of Columbia, of Dunning School, and, um, and others who were presenting black people as incompetent during the Reconstruction period. And Du Bois gives a lecture uh, uh, about black Reconstruction. And uh, he does it in such a powerful way at the American Historical uh, Association's uh, meeting with the major guy Dunning in the audience. Du Bois outlines the contributions or the positive benefits of Reconstruction to the South. For example, Reconstruction brought it education. Um, you know, Re Reconstruction brought the South, which was largely in feudal kind of stages, a kind of um, a kind of a modernization in a lot of its uh, infrastructure. Um, and uh, so these are some of the benefits. But there's a whole other narrative that W.E.B. Du Bois outlines in the very important book, Black Reconstruction in America, 1860 to 1880. Uh, David Levering Lewis is one of the best biographers of Du Bois, uh, David Levering Lewis. He's written a lot of uh, work on Du Bois. And in the intro, he outlines the importance of this work. And I really do think every black person in America should take the time to read this book, Black Reconstruction. Um, you know, if Malcolm X had read this book, I, I don't see any indication that he did. A lot of Malcolm's um, ideas would have had a better structure to them. Uh, and the Black Panther Party, if they had taken uh, this book seriously as a track for revolutionary possibility grounded on American antecedents rather than foreign examples for revolution, they may have gotten further along. Uh, a colleague of mine who's at Penn State University and is being punished by the university on a separate matter for nothing that he did wrong except write an article called Being Black at Penn State. And for that reason, they basically have silenced him for a couple of years. Uh, his name is Errol Henderson. Uh, he's a, a brother from Detroit, born and raised in the, Bruce's, in the Brewster Projects in Detroit. Um, he's written a new book called The Revolution Will Not Be Theorized. 
the revolution will not be theorized. And the subtitle addresses a black cultural revolution in the black power era. And he says that the black power movement needed to consult this work because in it Du Bois provides details that uh, powerfully educate us as a people about our own role, our own agency, our own empowerment during this era. So if you understand that slavery was not uniform in America, it never was. It was never one size fits all. In some parts of the country, it was hardly even an issue. In here in California, which was still under Mexico from 1821 until about the Mexican-American War in the 1840s, um, slavery was a non-issue for blacks. But there were uh, 80 times more Indians here than there were blacks. So slavery in California is not a black issue. Slavery in California was an Indian issue. Native Americans were enslaved here. Blacks were slave, enslaved in the, in, in the southeast and the, and, and the northeast. Um, and so when we start talking about slavery and even racism, we need to recognize that at the local level, these different manifestations are reflected the local dimension. So a black person in California in the 1840s, 1850s could become a millionaire. Um, the black community in San Francisco, for example, led by a black woman named Mary Ellen Pleasant, Mary Ellen Pleasant, uh, she was a former slave who married a white man and could pass and went to Louisiana, New Orleans, became the mentee of Marie Laveau, the, the legendary voodoo queen of Louisiana. She took her uh, mentoring, went to San Francisco, Mary Ellen Pleasant did, with her husband, and she dominated black San Francisco and San Francisco for about 20 years. And the black community there in the 1840s, they had just arrived with the gold rush. Black folk didn't try to get rich off gold, although slaves were allowed, for example, to uh, work for their masters and, and, and uh, till for gold in the morning, and they were allowed to get gold for themselves in the evening, and many blacks were able to buy their freedom in California uh, by being allowed to work on gold in the evening. But, but Mary Ellen Pleasant was leading about 400 blacks, and Mary Ellen Pleasant was doing this when Harriet Tubman had freed 70 blacks. Mary Ellen Pleasant had led 400, and most of them who got to San Francisco, she continued to fight in San Francisco, and she was Rosa Parks there before Rosa Parks was. She sued in San Francisco in the 18, oh, what years were that? About the 18, uh, 70s, 60s, 1850s, 1850s. She sued in the 1850s. Rosa Parks is 1950s. Mary Ellen Pleasant sued in San Francisco to have the railroad car, the railroad, you know, the rail system integrated in the 1850s, a hundred years earlier than the South movement, because they discriminated against her and kicked her off of a train one time. So she successfully sued, and then another company passed her up one day on the road. She so she called their, their managers and said, "I'm going to sue you too." They integrated. She was Rosa Parks 100 years before Rosa Parks was, and she was Harriet Tubman's 
um, a contemporary who was not, who was also born a slave, but she was not popular. The abolitionist movement got behind Frederick Douglass and uh, Harriet Tubman's stories and popularized them. No one popularized Mary Ellen Pleasant's story, but let me tell you a little bit more about her before we move on. Mary Ellen Pleasant led the a black community in the early 1850s, and they had a wealth holding of $2 million amongst themselves between the slave and free black community of San Francisco, only 400 people. They funded the Underground Railroad back east, and they funded the John Brown movement. John Brown met with Frederick Douglass repeatedly, even on the day of the insurrection. You want to talk about January 6th? Talk about October 16, 1859 was the first uh, attempt to overthrow the uh, federal government's uh, uh, armory. John Brown did it. He met with Harriet Tubman, who conspired with him and planned with him, and she felt he went all the blacks. Uh, he met with Martin Delaney, the father of black nationalism. John Brown met with all of the existing black leadership in America, even less well-known people, and they all told him, we believe in you, we're with you, but the timing is not right. John Brown went on and did his own thing. Mary Ellen Pleasant was upset with John Brown because she told him not to do it yet. He went on and did it. When they found John Brown's, uh, when they found John Brown and they arrested him after the Harpers Ferry uprising, they found in his pocket a note that said M E P, and many historians think it stood for Mary Ellen Pleasant. When he, when she died, and you can Google her, image her tombstone, Mary Ellen Pleasant, her tombstone says Friend of John Brown. What I'm trying to help us appreciate is that there was a civil rights movement before the civil rights movement by 100 years out here in the West Coast. And almost everything that happens in the, in the 1950s happens here in San Francisco like it did down in Atlanta and in Birmingham in the 1950s. Black San Francisco was the most important city in the West Coast until the 1906 earthquake opened up the East Bay, which is where Oakland, Berkeley, and San Leandro and those other areas are, uh, and Hayward, they, that opened the, a new black, new black communities up, and then Oakland became a larger black community than San Francisco, and so did L.A. But before 1906, from 1850 to 1906, black San Francisco is, dominates the west coast of America. And um, then the earthquake happens and transforms the city, transforms black life, etc. That's going on right during Reconstruction out here. Um, a, a little bit later And I think it's important for us to appreciate That the black experience Was diverse depending upon Where you were geographically The black people in the northeast Versus black folk in the southeast Versus black folk in uh, the far west All had different kinds of realities Mexico uh, and Spanish culture Continue to dominate The west coast in California Well into you know, the 1850s and, and 60s and 70s after it became American California. But the culture was still Spanish and Mexican. So blacks here felt like they could thrive more because the racism was qualitatively different. Now, it wasn't not racist. It was just a different kind of racism, and it wasn't focused on black folk. It was focused on Indians. And so black folk were able to exist. But it's also important for all of black America to know and all of America to know, for example, California becomes a state only because of the issue of slavery and nothing else. The issue of slavery was so important nationally that we had the Kansas-Nebraska 
division. You had the, the bleeding Kansas, uh, the, the, the you know civil war in, happened in Kansas before it breaks out in South Carolina. John Brown is a part of all of that. Um, all of that uh, 18. 50s, 1857, 1858, 1859. This is ratcheting up uh, for, for the Civil War, and 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 African Americans um, are clearly, uh, you know, uh, committed to their own security and development, and 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 so they know that freedom is is an important question on the table, and it's going to be, you know, fought out. Well. Um, when, the recon- when, the, when the Civil War breaks out, Du Bois explains that about 180,000 Amer- black American soldiers uh, take on the Union uniform, and those, that 180,000 soldiers is captured in the popular movie Glory with Denzel Washington, uh, Matthew Broderick, uh, Wesley Snipes, Morgan Freeman, um, and, and and a number of other uh, uh, actors. I think Bernie Mac might have been in that one too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Denzel was the black militant Malcolm X revolutionary rebel slave. He was Nat Turner. You know, he was Denmark Vesey. He was every slave uh, insurrectionist that ever existed in his body. And um, and that movie Glory about the 54th Infantry is a real story. Uh, it, that really did happen. Frederick Douglass really did advocate with Lincoln to to, to enlist black soldiers. Jefferson Davis, I'm not a Civil War historian, but I do know enough to talk a little bit about it. And Jefferson Davis um, also is trying to draft black soldiers. Um, Teddy Roosevelt is clear uh, down the line that black soldiers are superior fighters when he talks about them as Buffalo soldiers, and he later betrays them, but he understands them in the Spanish-American War. The Buffalo soldiers were superior soldiers. They were, they were like the Tuskegee Airmen a generation later. The white, no white uh, uh, um, squadron of, 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 of fighters uh, in, in World War II can say what the Tuskegee Airmen could say. They never lost a bomber. They were better than everybody else. And, and this is true um, going, you know, going back, going back. So that these soldiers um, in uniform, Du Bois says they fought for their freedom. And I think for us, I need for us to pause and think. Visualize 180,000 black people, men and women, but in this case it was all men, uh, with the exception of a few people like Harriet Tubman that got in uniform, um, and they, and they um, pick up guns and start killing white people. And it's, and it's not against the law. It's completely legal. And it's a part of the national, you know, recapturing of the, of, of the national order. Black people effectively saved democracy when 180,000 black soldiers came in uniform. And we've been doing it ever since. And we just did it again recently. And we're trying to, and we don't understand that this is a part of a cycle of our history. We've been doing this. We've been saving America from racism, um, taking it to hell. Um, this is not the first time. We've seen something recently in January. Um, but I'm asking you to go back and recognize that, that this happened in the in the Civil War. Actually, January 2021 is a is really a fantasy, a Civil War fantasy. That's all the reference, the historical reference was Civil War, Civil War, Civil War in 2021. All they talked about was Civil War, the 1860s. So here we are in the 1860s, and I'm suggesting to you 
that Du Bois's black reconstruction documents the enlistment of 180,000 black men who kill white men, and they are the deciders of the outcome of the war. If Jefferson Davis had persuaded them to join the Greys or the Confederate forces, as some did under force, and some spied on the uh, Confederates like Jefferson Davis's own uh, personal uh, uh, servant, um, uh, was a spy on him and the Confederacy. Um, uh, it's important, I think, to recognize that that you know the African American soldier was the determined the outcome of the Civil War. Um, the American North and South, uh, in fact, the North lost a hundred thousand more soldiers than the North, than the South did. The, the South actually won in terms of how many people died. More northerners died than southerners. And be clear, if you study this history, you'll realize uh, most of them who died died not related to combat, but to, you know, you know, being out in the elements and, you know, typhoid and um, tuberculosis and things of that sort, not through, not through actual, uh, you know, war, uh, war. So you have this large um, uh, number of people that die about uh, – uh, and a total of about uh, 600,000 Americans die in four years. In all of the Western world, nobody else had to fight their way out of slavery, only America. And, it, and because of that, America can't get, it has always had a problem with itself because the Americans sought to act like slavery was no big deal after it, in, after it was everything. <clears throat> after it was everything economically. What set the white man in America apart from the white man everywhere else on the planet was the black slave labor that he was able to expropriate for 244 plus years. That, that's, the, that, that's why America, as a young country that comes out of a revolution in 1787, all of a sudden catapults in front of their grandmother and grandfather countries like England, the United Kingdom, France, you know other young countries like Germany, but other old countries like Spain and um, and Portugal. America is a baby, and America jumps in front of everybody in the world as a child with 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 with, with, with dribble on its mouth. America was such a baby; it still had dribble on its mouth. But this baby had something special in its rattle, and in its rattle were these black things, and these black things gave that baby. Extreme power and wealth compared to everything else and all the adults and grandparents before him. And that child with that rattle is America. And the thing inside that rattle that he's shaking is the black labor that catapulted American capitalism to the fore of Western e economics. And so there is good scholarship um, that documents the actual economic impact of slavery, not on racism, but slavery on capitalism. Slavery created capitalism. Capitalism did not create slavery. Capitalism, in America at least, is after the mercantile stage of old Europe. America is everything new. America is a revolution. John Locke said, in the beginning, like in the Bible, there was America. So when the, when the new world is discovered, it's, it's everything new. Europe is old. Nobody's interested in Europe anymore. Everything is America. But what they won't tell you is the native people's land is the main source of wealth 
That, that, that's, you got to think about that. They come and take people's land. That's the beginning of white people's wealth on the, in the world in America, is the land they took from the native peoples. We act like they just killed them off as if that wasn't bad enough and, and went back to Europe. The white man in America is one of the few white men, like the one in Canada, who did not go back home. Let me say that again. Wherever black people are and wherever black people have been enslaved, the one, the one group that did not go back home is this one in America. And he still claims it as his land as if it is ancient. When we know that native, there were 20 million Native Americans, uh, esti- I think one estimation I've read, uh, 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 that had crossed, you know, come across the Barren Straits before the, Europe- the European contact with the continent, um, and cities like St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, Mexico City, uh, which was called Tenochtitlan, at that time had thriving uh, uh, economies and industry and uh, markets and, you know, and, and societies emergent, rivaling anything that Europe had uh, produced. I told my students earlier today, Europe had nothing that anybody wanted. Who was trying to get to Europe? Africa wasn't trying to get to Europe. Asia wasn't trying to get to Europe. Europe was only focused on Europe and European oppression and European conquering and 30 years war. Europe was obsessed with itself, killing itself off, oppressing the Irish, oppressing the Jews. And then because of its scarcity after the bubonic plague, the black plague that wipes them out in the 1300s, when they wake up, they come looking and searching for exploration because Europe ain't got nothing. And that's why the European man emerges out of the Dark Ages, calling it the rebirth of man. It wasn't the rebirth of Africa. At that point in the 13th century, Africa had developed iron or copper in places like Benin, um, Benin Sungai, Timbuktu. And, and, um, and, and, and yet at the root of all of this was cotton. And this is what Du Bois understands is the role of cotton and the, and, and the role of cotton in the making of capitalism. We've been mistaught. There's a book I also have here called Slavery's Capitalism. Slavery's Capitalism. Slavery's Capitalism. Not capitalism, slavery. It's saying that slavery created capitalism. That's, that's the inverse of how most of us get taught it. We get taught that capitalism was this giant thing and it created slavery as a small thing. We're saying slavery was the big thing, capitalism was his child. And we're saying you can look at this just by studying Lehman Brothers. Go, 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 Google Lehman Brothers and tell me where Lehman Brothers was born in Alabama. And then tell me what the Lehman Brothers were doing uh, working around on these uh, small, um, I think it was some kind of, uh, a product, some sort of coin, coins or coins, some sort of small mini, you know, uh, some sort of product, some minor product that they were hustling, and somehow they take that up to New York, to Wall Street. And black labor was deeply implicated in the work that the Lehman Brothers were doing in Alabama. So, so Wall, Wall Street was born in Alabama where black people's labor was being used to enrich the Lehman Brothers when they set up the Le- uh, Wall Street. Black people are the seed of Americans' greatness. They are, capitalism 
and had not even existed. I mean, Karl Marx is theorizing about capitalism, but he's theorizing about it in the 1840s, and capitalism is largely brutal, violent, um, unregulated. Uh, you know, it's, it's the exploitation of children, the exploitation of women's labor in factories in the, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And that's what I think we need to appreciate, is slavery of black people in America were critical to the Industrial Revolution. We are the revolution within the revolution of the, you know, the economic part. We are, the, we are their racist revolution within the economic revolution of capitalism. So let me explain that. Hold me to that. I said that we are their racist revolution within the economic revolution of capitalism. Gerald Horn in his book, Cap, uh, the, counter, uh, the, the American Counter-Revolution, supports my point here. He suggests that the true genealogy of America from the founding at the American Revolution because black people have been here for over 150 years, as I told you. In the Spanish, we go back to the 1500s, uh, way before the 1600s. Black people have been free in, in the West for, you know, for over 100 years before slavery, uh, the re reversal of fortune in the 1600s. And so, and so to be clear, um, um, the, um, the, the, the way in which slavery evolves is it's, the, it's sui generis. It's the source. It's, 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 it's the cause. It's not effect. Slavery helps America bypass feudalism, which Europe experienced, but America never does. America never had feudalism. Feudalism is the lords, the serfs, the church, the Catholic church. Um, uh, that's what Marx is theorizing around, you know, the haves and the have-nots, the first estate, the third estate. We didn't have that. You had wealthy white people, and then you had everybody else, including whites who weren't wealthy. But there was a special laser focus on the black element. There was the Native American element. There was the Indian element. Um, sorry, uh, that's the same thing. There was the Mexican element. Um, but they laser focused on the black group. And, and, and so the black group becomes so important in the infrastructure of America's political system, the electoral college, has everything to do with the black presence in America. If there is no black group, there is no electoral college. Do you understand every time you see the electoral college in the 21st century showing its ugly head in presidential elections, that's a remnant from slavery itself? Because in understanding the founding of America, the South gave the North a three-fifths compromise, and the North gave the South the electoral college. Let me say that again. At the Philadelphia Convention that goes from March until uh, September 17, 1787, um, you have a, a complete arrangement where the African-American uh, group is uh, basically uh, sold out in the, in the early compromise. Black people had already been here, and the American Revolution did not free them. The American Revolution actually happens in 1776, um, all the way, you know, after 1787, and black people don't get out of slavery until the 1860s, 90 years later. I ask my students all the time, Ms. Graham, why did slavery survive the American Revolution? And you need to ask yourself that question. How could the world historical event, like a world 
revolution like the American Revolution, based on democracy and freedom and liberty and justice and the Declaration of Independence, allow slavery of blacks to continue afterward. That, that revolution should have freed blacks and women. In fact, the revolution sent women back decades. Women in, 1920, in 2020 were celebrating the 100th anniversary of having the right to vote. Not uh, Many of them not realizing what they were really celebrating was women getting the right to vote again. Because women had the right to vote during the colonial era. The American Revolution took women's rights to vote away. Let me say that to you again. Women were voting during the colonial period. Not a lot of them. But women could vote legally anywhere in the colonial era. It just wasn't customary, but it wasn't prohibited. When the American Revolution happens, even after Abigail Adams told her husband, John, before he went to Philly, yo, make sure you take care of the women or we will rise up against you, they still went there and, and constructed the system uh, in, in the way that they did. So the women, women lose power. Women lose power with the American Revolution. Please back. Please look this up. Please study for yourself what was the voting rights status of women during the colonial era of the American period, before revolution, before the 1770s. And you'll see in many places, small numbers of women voted and could vote, and it wasn't even a question. So when you're celebrating in 1920 with the 19th Amendment, the Susan B. Anthony Amendment, and in 2020, the 100th anniversary of women to vote, please be clear, you're celebrating women getting their power taken from them and being restored finally in 1920. You're not celebrating them getting the right to vote for the first time ever. Go back to the colonial period. 150 years earlier, women were voting. The American Revolution set women backwards. And I'm saying the same thing with black people. The American Revolution should have freed everybody, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? A real revolution should have freed everybody. But it didn't. The, the American Revolution freed the Americans to continue slavery. And this is the main premise of Gerald Horn's book, The American Counter-Revolution. He says the American Revolution is actually racist. It's only racism, he says, effectively. The true genealogy... In the Civil War, from the, 187, from the 1770 American Revolution, draw a line to the Civil War. Started the 1780s or 1770s, draw a line to the 1860s. And at the 1860s, split that line. Put, draw a left, a, left, uh, a left lane, put Jefferson Davis or, or uh, J.D., and then create a, a, like a wishbone, uh, uh, and, and, and on the right side of the wishbone, make it A.L., a. Abe Lincoln. And I'm saying to you that if you go from the beginning point of that wishbone and drive up to the split, the genealogy of racism in America goes to the left with Jefferson Davis from the founding of the American Revolution. If not, we wouldn't have had slavery after the American Revolution. Why does slavery, why does slavery survive the American Revolution? Because of its racism. And that's what Jefferson Davis is the child of, not Abraham Lincoln. I'm turning history upside down here. I'm saying to you that the real, that, that Gerald Horn scholarship, I'm giving you his scholarship and saying that his premise is that the real racism in America is the, real, is the true America. 
and that Abraham Lincoln is the outlier. Abraham Lincoln ain't the mainstream. Abraham Lincoln is the disruptor of the norm. The norm is from Thomas Jefferson raping 14-year-old Sally for 40 years to him seeing the um, Missouri Compromise Line established in 1828 and saying then, uh, in 1820, and saying then that he knows that it's going to be the source of America's death, the Missouri Compromise Line divided America half slave, half free, and it lasted as a kind of American agreement for 30 years until the 1854 Kansas-Nebraska Act. As states were coming into the Union half slave, half free, they could choose by their legislatures, instead of it being automatically based on where you were physically. From 1820 on, it was if you were above the 36-30 parallel, you were a free state. So Ohio, Minnesota, um, places like um, New Hampshire, um, uh, oh, uh, you know, uh, you, if you were in Kentucky, like in the movie Beloved or in the book Beloved, if you were in Kentucky and could, could, could cross the Ohio River, you were free, you know, because they were bordering territories. Um, black folk in, this, in these periods become the basis of American capitalism. They, they are the source of capitalism. They are not victims of it. Mm-hmm. We've had it upside down. The enslavement of blacks is such a powerful thing for so many uh, layers of America. So its electoral college system is based on black slavery. The 500 and, uh, I want to say, uh, 570 electors substitute, or 540 electors, the 270 plus 270, the 540 electors from the electoral college substituted for the 4 million black people in the South who could not vote. And so as long as blacks were slaves from up until 1860s, the electoral college is the main substitute for black voting going from the Civil War back to the founding of the country. So from the time of the founding of, the, of America in, eight, in, the, in the American Revolution, until the Civil War, slavery is the main economic driver of America's catapulting the world in capitalism. That key period from war to war is where black people are the main thing. And by 1862, at the end, uh, near the war, black, the holding and the wealth of total black, the value of black labor, the value of black human beings enslaved, um, recent studies, um, uh, I have a book here called Cotton and the Making Cotton and Race in the Making of America, The Human Cost of Economic Power by Jean D-A-T-T-E-L, Daytel. A cotton and cotton and race in the making of America. And it shows that cotton as a product was uh, so important to the uh, political economy, to the economy of America, to the British economy, to textiles, to exporting out in the northeast uh, uh, from the shipyards. Um, all of this was capitalism, and and black people were the main um, producers of the main product of capitalism in its infancy, and that's cotton. And then in 1791, Eli Whitney up at Princeton in New Jersey creates a cotton gin, which stands for cotton engine, cotton gin, cotton engine. Uh, it was a cotton gin in August of 1955, that was tied to the body of Emmett Till. That, that was the deep thing about Emmett Till. Not only did they dehumanize him and, and completely emasculate him and, and mutilate him, but they tied him to the symbol of slavery, 
the cotton engine from 
Black people should have been freed by civil war. Black people should have been freed by American Revolution, rather, but it took civil war. You see, um, the civil war is seen by many as a second revolution, the unfinished American Revolution, because it didn't deal with the racism that it should have dealt with in 1776. So they had to do it in 1870. And Jefferson says so in 1820. When the Missouri Compromise Line is signed, Jefferson says, I thank God that I will not be alive to see what happens here. And on July um, uh, 4th, 1828, Thomas Jefferson dies. Let me say that again so you hear me. On July 4th, the 4th of July, 1828, Thomas Jefferson dies 50, exactly 50 years to the day of the Declaration of Independence. And guess who also dies that same day? His main political enemy forever, John Adams, up in Massachusetts. Two of the great men of American history die on July 4th, not the 39th or 49th anniversary of the American Revolution, but on the 50th anniversary. And Jefferson and Adams said the Missouri Compromise is going to be the death of America because, again, here is racism. Legally, America decided, look, we're not going to talk about it. We're just going to create a system of segregation, uh, not even segregation. Look at this. America defi- divides itself on race. If you're free, if you're born above this line, you're free. If you're down below this line, you're slave until 1850. Then it's wherever you are, if your legislature gets to choose. So now it's, it's arbitrary. So Kansas wants to come in, um, and they want slavery. Well, because Missouri has come in. The Missourians over in Missouri come over into Kansas trying to turn Kansas into a slave state, and the abolitionists are like, oh, no, we're going to make Kansas the last stand. So Kansas becomes a symbol of the future war, and the whites like John Brown and his sons and, uh, and those that were pro-slavery from Missouri, they fight it out in, in, in Kansas, right? And, and the backdrop of all of this is that black people are the reason why America divided itself in half, slave and free, and now they're fighting about it. Fast forward, 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson. Here America, again, is torturing and contorting its body, breaking itself apart in order to have racism legally in Plessy versus Ferguson. This is different than uh, 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 the Missouri Compromise. But look at this, people. Look at the depths that the American system went. To, to, rather than absorbing black people in as full human beings, they split the country for, for 40 years, half slave and half free. And then when that fell apart in Civil War, 30 years after the war, they create Jim Crow segregation as an answer to Reconstruction. Now, now that's deep. That's what, that, that, to you, that should tell you there's some deep evil here or some deep spiritual sickness going on. That after all of these experiences, these people still have not figured out their own humanity and their ability to relate to the black humanity around them that is enriching them. And maybe that was the problem is because they were benefiting from black labor, they could not humanize black labor. So the three-fifths clause ends up being a clause that says we know that black people are here, but we, uh, but, but we don't want them to count fully. So we'll count them as 60%, and the north is dancing up in the streets. And then the south says, okay, we gave you that north because we got too many Negroes down here. What we want from you is the Electoral College. And we will use these 540 electors to substitute for the 4 million Negroes who are not allowed to vote. But we use these Negroes as the basis for the Electoral College. And as a result, the Southern Bloc of members of the House of Representatives had 40% more representation in Congress because of the black group, even with them only being counted 60%. 
So that's just the political structure of America. When you, when you talk about three-fifths clause, it's not about whether blacks were three-fifths human. That's just stupid politics. That's rhetorical. I don't mind it. It's rhetorical. But it ain't got a damn thing to do with what, was really three, what three-fifths was really about. Three-fifths ain't had nothing to do with whether blacks were considered three-fifths human. And anybody saying that is pretty ignorant. Black people were not considered three-fifths human. They weren't considered that much. The three-fifths compromise is a favor to the North who were supposed to be our friends, selling us out. I'm trying to show you something. And then the South sells us out with the Electoral College. And that becomes the basis of how the South is able to dominate Congress up until we get free. When we get free, then they, they can't use us anymore for the Electoral College. So the Electoral College still exists in 2021, but its racial importance died when we got free. You understand? It worked from the 1800s to the 1860s, but when we got free, it becomes useless for that part, you know, for that means to presidential selection. So they just use it as a formula of 435. Whoever gets to the first, um, you know, uh, 500, you know, 470 uh, electoral college college votes wins. But black people's existence was deeply implicated in that. And I'm also saying, so that's on the political front. On the economic front, I'm saying to you, from civil war to from American Revolution to Civil War, anytime you are talking about black people built America, those are the years from Revolution to Civil War. And and part of the uh, uh, explanation for the Civil War is that it had to do with whether or not the dominant mode of economic direction in this country was going to be kind of northeast mercantile capitalistic mode of production or whether it was going to be an agrarian rural you know farming kind of um uh mode of production that would dominate the economy and some scholars that don't like mention in their names argue you know that that the civil war was really about that too it was about slavery but it was also about what kind of economy america was going to have uh in the 20th century going forward but cotton was king du bois knows this and when and so when you come back to black reconstruction Du Bois is clear that black people are the soul of America. And without black people, America is dead. It has no soul. They are the soul of America. That's why he says the souls of black folk. He wasn't talking about our anguish. He was talking about the spiritual beauty that we represent just being here under these racist conditions and how white men can look on at us in pity and contempt. And yet in every chapter of the souls of black folk, every chapter, if you have a copy of it, open it and look at the bars in the front chapters of each chapter of the Souls of Black Folk. There's some bars there, some musical bars with no words except in one. And next to it is European words and European sonnets and European names of John Doan and other people. And that's because those, those lyrics there, those, those uh, musical bars, those are the chords of American Negro spirituals, of black Negro spirituals. Du Bois just put them next to the Europeans, just to say, whatever you think you are, whatever you think you've become, the Negro has created art that you can't even begin to understand, and I'm putting the bars right beside your, your well-known uh, European recognition and accomplishment without comment. These are, uh, uh, you know, go down Moses, way down in Egypt's land, tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. Like Marian Anderson saying, sometimes I feel like a motherless child, a long way from home, right? Um, the depths of that. And Du Bois wants us to appreciate that, that black people thrived from the 1860, uh, 1860 until 1880, roughly. And he believed that if we had about 50 years of Reconstruction, 
America could have been on a different racial path than it chose. That if we had, instead of about 12 years, because there are other scholars like Eric Foner, uh, Eric Foner, F-O-N-E-R, and, um, and also uh, John Hope Franklin. These are important scholars who have written about Reconstruction. But Du Bois calls his black Reconstruction. Nobody else does that. And that's important. He's given black people power. He basically says in this book that black people are the, are the proletariat that Karl Marx thinks he's talking about in Europe. The revolutionary, you know, the proletariat, the working class, the, the workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. That fit Europe, but it had nothing to do with America. Du Bois says in America, black people are the proletariat. Black people are the revolutionary class. And he says that they took up arms in the Civil War and won their freedom. Abraham Lincoln, I see a commercial about this. Uh, there's something coming on this week about Lincoln. They're trying to use Lincoln right now to heal America right now. And they're showing Lincoln. And in the commercial, it says, one of the actors says, and Lincoln freed the slaves. And every time I hear that, Ms. Graham, I cringe and I cringe and I cringe and I cringe because I want people to read Black Reconstruction and see 180,000 black men took up guns and killed white men, and they had a revolution within a revolution. Um, uh, the, again, the white men from the, Civil War, from the American Revolution to the Civil War were only fighting for racism. I'll say it again. From the American Revolution to the Civil War, the whites fighting were fighting for racism. I'm, not ta that's, I'm talking about those who were the rebels in both instances. They were fighting for racism. The American Revolution that won and created the red, white, and blue flag that created America, that created Philadelphia in 1786, that was the racism that won. So like I said in that wishbone analogy, the true children of the American Revolution, according to Gerald Horn, Ms. Graham, is not Abraham. The true disciple, the true descendant of the American Revolution is not Abraham Lincoln. It's Jefferson Davis the racist. It's the Confederacy. So when these white folk are taking over the Capitol in January, talking about racism and saying this is our country, see, that's the problem. America can't deal with that, Ms. Graham. That's hard because they're not lying. MAGA... Miss Graham is legitimately, fairly and legitimately the child of Andrew Jackson, of Andrew Johnson, of the American Revolution. MAGA is an extension of the racism that was the Civil War's racism and the American Revolution's racism. And I'm not talking about the white folk that fought to, 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 on the opposite sides and you saying, well, what about the white folk that fought on, uh, on, on, the, on the blue side? It wasn't like these were a bunch of abolitionists, first of all. It wasn't like they loved Negroes, second of all. Um, and, and plenty of them in New York, if you've ever seen the movie Gangs of New York, the, 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 the Irish had riots in New York because they didn't want to fight for black people. Then nobody loved black people. And, and that's what Honorable Elijah Muhammad and John Henry Clark have taught us never to forget. We have no friends. Anybody running around talking about alliances and coalitions have not studied their history. Because if you are still relying on that as your liberation, um, it's probably because you haven't consulted your history. Because you will see, Du Bois explains that black people have always been the most important democratic element of American society. We fought, when, they, when those soldiers fought to get free and killed white men, the other thing that Du Bois documents in this book is something called the general strike. The general strike. Du Bois says that 300,000 black men, women, and children, when the men took up the guns, they walked off the plantation 
and engaged in what would be called effectively a labor strike. And that was a general strike of four million black laborers, and they killed slavery together with guns and walking off the plantation. And that is the story of black reconstruction. That's what Du Bois tries to tell us. So we will know that Abraham Lincoln ain't free nobody. He played a very important part. And to study in the history of him and, and Frederick Douglass's interaction, clearly there's a, a, a two sides to Abraham Lincoln. We've all heard from Lerone Bennett's book, um, uh, 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 Forced into Glory. There's a book about Abraham Lincoln by Lerone Bennett, the great publisher of Ebony, called Forced into Glory, that talks about Abraham Lincoln's reluctance. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of two-faced Abraham Lincoln, one where Douglas thinks he's a, a noble man who'd done the right thing in history, but other parts of Douglas felt he was racist and, and suspect. And then, and then Abraham Lincoln's own word, when he engaged in the Stephen Douglas, Abraham Lincoln debates, Abraham Lincoln was basically like Biden, a little bit less racist than the big racist. You know, that's what Lincoln was. He was like Biden, racist. But, but not nearly as racist as the alternative, Stephen Douglas, who wanted to send us back to Africa in chains. So Abraham Lincoln being, you know, divided on it at least was progress, and he could be used, and Abraham Lincoln was used. I think we uh, uh, should uh, probably, um, you know, take any questions, uh, if anybody has them. I tried to lay out the foundation of a period of basically from the American Revolution as a founding moment, to, to, to take us to the Civil War period, which is 90 years later, and to explain that, the, that, that is the critical stage of black people's importance for capitalism, and that's where capitalism is born. And when America comes out of the Civil War, it comes out divided, but it comes out the most powerfully industrialized. It, becomes out, it comes out of its divided war rich. America becomes a largely, uh, a, you know, a wealthier country because of uh, its advanced stage. As I said, uh, slavery helped America avoid feudalism. Slavery helped America avoid feudalism. Slavery, if there's any feudalism, some say it might have been amongst Native Americans, but not amongst the European immigrants here. And, and slavery, the way their bodies and labor was used to expedite economically past the stage of feudalism, America kind of goes from farming to capitalism. It skips feudalism. Why? Because of black labor. In Europe, they had to go through feudalism. And in Europe, that meant white people were the oppressed class, the, the third estate, the Les Miserables, the, the, the serfs, S-E-R-F. There's the lords and the serfs, Right. Marx says uh, uh, the, 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 the truth of all you know, previous history is a history of a conflict between the haves and the have-nots, the lords and the serfs, the slaves and the free, you know, the, the, you know, the aristocracies and the peasants. Um, and, and so that, that, that dynamic is, is in play with, with black people in America as we are the most important economic thing between the, civil, between the American Revolution and the Civil War, and then the war itself produces American industrialization and technology in guns, in weaponry, in steel, and armaments, and, 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 it's, and it's capitalism. 
the mass production of cotton makes America the most important economic country in the world. When Europe kind of goes backwards towards a kind of mercantilism, going backwards, America jumps forward past everybody, all of those countries involved in uh, international colonialism, taking over other people's lands. America didn't do that. America just built this. Listen to me. America didn't even engage in colonialism. Listen to yourself. Look at your history. America's colonialism is in the Pacific in the 1890s. Guam, Samoa, Hawaii. But America is obsessed on one thing in the 1850s, the, 18, the 1700s to the 18, uh, until the War of 1812. America has nothing to do with Europe. America has no involvement with Europe from America is only interested in developing its slavery economy. The War of 1812 was the last fight we had with Europe. And from 1812 to the World, World War I, 1914, America stayed out of Europe for 100 years. What the hell do you think they were doing for 100 years when they weren't bothering Europe? They were developing the perfections of the systems of slavery and, um, and, and other kinds of labor exploitation of black and brown and poor people's labor for the next uh, uh, stages. So even as the slavery dies with war, it becomes the, the thesis or the paradigm for the structure of political relationships between bosses and laborers. So instead of looking at black, trying to figure out how is black people's labor fit within white labor's kind of understanding of bosses and workers, I'm telling you, you better look at the slave's relationship to the master and then ask, look at that relationship as a model for what white men subsequently do with labor. I'm saying to you, white laborer, that the white master over white immigrant labor Learn the practices of boss over labor on the plantation so that when they apply it to the Jew and to the Irish and to the Polish workers in Chicago and Boston and Philly and New York during the industrialization of the 1840s, 18, uh, 1880s, the model was black people's enslavement. So anyone that tries to brush away slavery as long ago I often ask them, how long did it last? Do you realize slavery lasted so long that if we did a, 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 a game right now and counted from 1865 to 2020, we would still have about 70 more years, about 75 more years since the day the Civil War ended back in 1865 up until today, we still would have about another 75 years for how long slavery lasted to black people. From, from now, from 20 to 20, from 
Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Black history is important to me because I have to remember where I came from and I have to remember who came before me. Because you have to look at the things that Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, and um, Malcolm X did for us black people so people can't treat us unfairly because they think some type of relief. Just always celebrate it because you know the, the, the struggles black leaders went through in order for you to be here right now. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. We need to stand together so we can be one. How do you wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health? It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals. The United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. That what we see before our eyes, the sky is green and the grass is blue. But one thing you can't deny, these people are sabotaging this country. Nothing comes to a sleeper but a dream. Drilling down. Just damn. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. This is Alpha, hosting the best of Pushback Talk Radio. The Alpha Show. He's back. The Alpha Show, August 26th, Wednesday, 10 p.m. The Alpha Show, only at TruthWorks Network. Each Wednesday, 10 p.m. 10 p.m. 
Thank you for joining us in this first installment of a four-part lecture, The History of Black Political Movements in America. I'm Janice Graham, and we appreciate and are grateful for the brilliance and genius of Dr. James Taylor, who shares his knowledge, his passion, and his keen analysis and insight through years of study experience and academic leadership. Join us for the remaining three parts of this lecture series. Each Thursday, February 11th, 18th, and 25th, 8 p.m., here at Our Common Ground, where for 34 years we have been the university on the air. Join us on Saturday night coming up. February 6th on Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, we'll be talking with Dr. Shirley Whitaker about lynching as part of Black History. Now, back to Dr. James Taylor. Welcome back. Welcome back. We want to continue where we left off, and that is to sort of uh, look at this early, uh, this late 19th century uh, stage of black political development because it's very important to know uh, what's at play, what stage it is in our history. We, we need to understand there's a whole period of the 1840s where uh, men like John Langston, um, uh, uh, Ford Douglas, not Frederick Douglas, Ford Douglas, no relation, um, uh, uh, John McCune, I think it was, um, uh, uh, Mary Shad Carey, um, uh, and, 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 and a number of others, uh, were organizing around these attempts to, um, to you know, to deal with the black predicament um, and, and the rec- in, in this period, and and the early black you know the early black movements um, go back to really the convention era of the 1840s. Uh, you can study the Negro Convention movement. The early Negro Convention movement was basically a forerunner of the 1960s, 1970s, Gary, Indiana. Philly, Little Rock, uh, uh, um, Atlanta, black convention movement that lasted a decade from 1972 up until when Jesse took it over and ran for president. But, but this was something that, that black people had already established, you know, well, well beforehand. Um, and so, you know, when you start talking about, you know, when we get to Booker Washington and, and Reconstruction, that's 50 to 60 years after the, recon, the, the, the convention era. So we've had these different political periods 
and most of our gains have been um, incremental and small, given the you know the tremendous odds they they confront. But they have always been disparaged. The whole history of Reconstruction was caricatured and um, criticized and um, really embarrassed across the country by Columbia University. Columbia University up in Harlem. Columbia University um, caricatured, and this is in my book on black nationalism, Columbia University presented the Reconstruction era as an era of black incompetence. Black uh, people were too ignorant and backward and corrupt to govern. So the Democrats, who were the racist party, and black at, blacks at this time are in the Republican Party of Lincoln, are presenting blacks as ignorant, rapists, um, minstrel that used to be, you know, Irish white men hanging around black men, realizing they had something in common with white with black men, admiring black men, all of a sudden from the 1840s up until the 1940s, minstrel is turned into this monstrosity of a presentation of blacks. And when blacks were enslaved, they were not seen as rapists. Nobody called black men rapists in slavery. They were Uncle Toms. They were docile. They were naturally predisposed for slavery. They were fine in slavery, we were told. As soon as they got free, they were seen as rapists and have been ever since because they were seen as a threat as free men in ways that they were not seen as threat as, um, as you know, dominated men and women. So I think it's important to recognize that the Negro Convention Movement is 50 years, uh, uh, about, about 20 years uh, before Reconstruction. So, so, so think about that. Just like black power has something to do with Brown v. Board of Education, 1954, black power happens in 1966, and we all can know that all of that stuff is all wrapped up together with King in between. You have to look at the 1860 Reconstruction period in light of the previous 20 years of black leadership in the black convention movement going back to the 1840s before you can understand black people in the 1860s and the 1870s. What is their reference? The reference of the Reconstruction 1860s is the black 1840s, just like the 60s movement informed hip-hop and and, and after, and even it's still informing Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter's main reference is black power, not Martin Luther King, right? So, so these um, eras don't have these clear beginning and endings that people's dates applied fixed to them. In fact, Foner, uh, John Hope Franklin, and Du Bois all use three different periods for what they call the Reconstruction period. Let me say that again. All the major scholars have different dates on what Reconstruction's decade dates are. They're not exact. One starts at about 1862 and goes to 1877. Du Bois goes 1860 to 1880. And John Hope Franklin has a similar kind of construction, but they aren't exact. But the point is that Reconstruction is really a new movement from an old black movement called the Convention Movement. And then, du and then after Reconstruction, again, Du Bois thinks it's great. Du Bois thinks racial democracy um, is happening. That's what he calls it. He calls it racial democracy. Racial reconstruction is what he calls it. And he thinks that this is, the, the, this is what the 
American Revolution should have done 90 years earlier. But the second violent American Revolution, called the Civil War, with the Black Revolution and general strike within it, has produced a, 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 a new America. So even Abraham Lincoln is understanding America with the Emancipation Proclamation as a new America with a new genealogy, and that genealogy runs from Abraham Lincoln to Martin Luther King to Barack Obama to black folk. And I'm putting Obama in there just because the black presidency was black people, not Obama. I should have said the black presidency so you don't get upset. Because the black presidency was black people's idea 45 years before Obama came along. That was black America's strategy in Gary, in Philly, in Atlanta, and in Little Rock. When Jesse was running around, Farrakhan was there, Jesse was there, Miss Graham was there, uh, Baraka was there, Ronald Walter was there. Jesse was running around talking about his nation time. What time is it? It's nation time. Jesse still had his afro. By 72, 73, Jesse cuts it and joins the McGovern group. And then Jesse runs as president. Well, be clear. Jesse took over what was an everyday black people trying to figure out the best strategy. Now, he's being advised by Ron Walters and others. So he's not doing it on his own. But I'm trying to get you to understand the idea of the black president has nothing to do with Obama, except he was lucky enough to be the one to come along and benefit from what had been a black strategy, going back to Shirley Chisholm, too, in 72 at Gary. So my point to you is that, um, you know, we've had reconstruction moments. We've had these 12-year breakthroughs. Martin Luther King is on the scene. Guess how long? 13 years. 19, um, let's see, uh, uh, happens in uh, 1955, bus boycott, to 1968, he's dead. Martin, Malcolm X, how long is Malcolm on the scene? 13 years. 1952, he gets out of prison. 1965, Malcolm is dead. Um, reconstruction lasts about 10, 12, 13 years. Du Bois says 20 as it wound down. But the peak of it wasn't long. It was too short. And Du Bois felt like, um, you know, reconstruction needed to be longer. But then you had white Ivy League, or not Ivy League, but these elite white institutions caricaturing black leaders as backward and morally corrupt. And the truth was everybody was corrupt at that point in time. Nobody was living right in terms of the corruption of the system. So from 1865 to the 1880s, or 1860 to the 1880s, in Du Bois' mind, you have black reconstruction in America. And what changes it? What ends reconstruction? A presidential campaign ends reconstruction. One single presidential campaign, the 1876 election, please be clear, on January 1st, when the Capitol was taken over, everybody was talking 1876. The Republicans, to defend um, defending Trump, uh, they used the 1876. In fact, uh, Lindsey Graham quoted 1876 presidential campaign and mentioned his only black friend in South Carolina, Senator Tim Scott, in the same sentence. Look at look it up. He mentions the 1876 election and Tim Scott together, my black friend. Before I say this racist stuff I'm about to say to y'all, this is Lindsey Graham. Um, McCarthy, out here in California, uh, Kevin McCarthy, talking about 1876. Well, the 1876 election was between Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican, who black people supported, and Samuel Tilden, the Democrat. The 
what happens in 2000 with Gore and Bush basically happens in 1877 with a, a man from Tennessee. Um, well, I'll leave that alone. In 1876, right? And, 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 and so the outcome of it is Congress creates a committee of 15 people, eight Republicans, seven Democrats. They end up with a resolution that says we will take the, the American government will take the Union troops out of the South overseeing Reconstruction, which effectively sells us out in Reconstruction. And the white South got control back over us, and the white North got the presidency and the future, which it continued to dominate uh, for some time to come uh, after. Now, the greatest lesson for me, Ms. Graham, in this study of Reconstruction is its ending and its outcome. The 1876 presidential election. White America, North and South, sold black people out with the 1876 presidential election, and that was the end of Reconstruction. So if you are alive in 2021 and you want to know what this history has to do with you, it's teaching you that North and South, they're going to find a way to make peace with each other. MAGA and Nancy in San Francisco, where I've been for 20 years here, where I'm talking from, they're going to find a way to make peace. Nancy going to reconcile with Trumpism as much as she hates it because white people are watching and because they are the ones that are dependent on America sticking together. So I'm saying to us, those of you who are Democrats, you should be militant and, and insist without compromise, <clears throat> no compromise, no forgiveness, no reconciliation without truth. Truth, reconciliation, accountability, prison, and any other kind of judgment that's necessary. Because if those were black people that took over the Washington Capitol, people would be dead by now. Everybody would be going to prison. When John Brown did it in 1859, Frederick Douglass had to leave America for two months. Harriet Tubman hid for months. Mary Ellen Pleasant had to hide. These white folk took over the Capitol in 2021, and they're out on on YouTube, IG, Facebook, Twitter, bragging about it. Hell, one woman yesterday was told her was told by the judge was, was asked the judge, "Can I go on vacation with my job after after I attack the government?" And we see the complete racism of America right now playing out in plain sight, where white, even with white young people side by side with black people in the George Floyd protest. You had a very different response to that than you did all of the racism in Kenosha, Portland, Seattle, um, Wisconsin, other parts of Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, Baltimore, L.A. The police reaction in all of those cases was, we're on the side of the racists. And I work with the police at SFPD on two different committees that the black chief appointed me to. And I go around them, and I'm, I'm just like, how do y'all justify this? Because each cop wants to reduce everything cops do down to the, own, the one cop, not to policing. And yet the pattern is overarching. Where we saw throughout June and July a, a, a military response to nonviolent people, from the president with a Bible upside his, upside his hands to secret police with unmarked cars and unmarked clothes grabbing Americans from Seattle streets, and there's still been no accountability for it. 
Now you let let that be Obama. All of white America would lose its damn mind if that was Obama doing what Trump has done. They would see it as a racial threat, an existential threat, that black people are trying to take over America to kill them. And we're supposed to look at the opposite happening as something be now. Like, it's all cool. And I'm saying to you that the number one lesson that Du Bois and others help us understand from Reconstruction is its betrayal. We were sold out as a people when we were given 15, 12 years, 20, depending upon how you count it, to have freedom and racial democracy. We were on our way to self-development. We weren't worried about them. As long as they left us alone, we were busy trying to develop our own institutions, building churches, building universities. We weren't worried about white people. And then they closed the door on it, north and south together. And I'm saying to you, if you think that Chuck Schumer won't sell you out, black man, you're out of your damn mind. Chuck Schumer will compromise with his friends. Look, Schumer from New York. Trump is from New York. I'm from New York. I know these people. They will as quickly sell black people down the road, won't even think twice about it. This is what happened to us in Reconstruction. We were winning from 1865 until 1877, 1880, black people. We were winning for a minute after 244 years of hell. We were winning for 15, 12 years, and they closed the door on us. White and black, white north and white south, together. And that's what's happening now. See, again, you need to listen to me carefully and understand that I'm able, as a student of politics, to separate the black presidency from the first black president, Obama. I'm not talking about Obama. I'm talking about black people's political idea of maybe that's our next strategy after the civil rights movement. Because that, that, that was the big idea after the civil rights movement, was how do we organize ourselves? Do we create a party? Or do we do a presidential strategy? And Jesse said, ooh, that sounds good. And Jesse ran with it. But before that was a modern black convention movement like in the 1840s. And black people were carrying it out, trying to figure out, what do we do now that we've had black power and we've had reconstruction and we've had um, Brown versus Board of Education and we've had Jackie Robinson and we've had all of these black breakthroughs? What do we do with all of this? How do we process it and go forward? And, 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 And then... And then that door is shut again. Martin Luther King, I told you, 13 years. Malcolm, 13 years. That's it. That's the second Reconstruction period, just like the first one. The door is shut. Before it was shut, 1862, about 1877. This time it was 1960, about 1955 with Brown to 1968 with the death of King. 13 years. So that's the second Reconstruction. Let me say that again. The Civil Rights Movement is considered by many scholars like Manning Marable to be the second black reconstruction. And then if that means, are we in the third one right now? Or are we still a part of that second reconstruction that Manning Marable says the 60s movement was about? But we are connected to it, people. The Black Lives Matter, the movement for black lives, the anti-police brutality movement, um, the, the general movements that black people have been engaged in uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as a minority population in this country around their political rights, I'm not talking about, you know, what's going on in Nigeria and injustices in Nigeria or what's happening in, in, um, in Indonesia right now. We're talking only the African-American political situation. So I'm not, you know, uh, being narrow, I'm being very specific to what we're talking about. 
And African Americans have had these small windows of breakthrough. And they really prove that racism is the norm and quotidian, quotidian, Q-U-O-T-I-D-I-A-N, meaning routine, every day, just like the air we breathe. And every once in a while, something like an Obama or or Kamala Harris happens, but Trump was the reset of the norm. So Obama broke through, Trump reset the norm. Uh, uh, Martin Luther King and the Black Power Movement break through, Reagan resets the norm. Reagan comes after King. Reagan is a response to King. Reagan is a response to Martin Luther King, people. Reagan started running in 76. King died in 68. Damn, that's eight years. There's not a decade between Reagan and King. Reagan and King are contemporaries. When Reagan sees Black Panther Party walking past him in 1967 in Sacramento, the Panthers with the guns in Sacramento at the Capitol, Martin Luther King was alive. Reagan was the person they walked past. The Panthers come two years before Martin dies. Martin dies 68. The Panthers rise up 66. They already weren't listening to Martin anymore. So the the second reconstruction is what the uh, 60s are called. And the question is now that we're 30 years, 40 years after the 60s, what is our relationship to the 60s? Are we an extension of it? Because many people are alive who were active on the front lines of the 60s. Millions are still alive. Both of Martin Luther King's lawyers are still alive. Uh, Clarence Jones is out here with me. He just turned 90. The one who smuggled the Birmingham letter. And Fred Gray is alive down in Atlanta. I'll say it again. Rosa Parks' original attorney that got her off the bus uh, out the bus case is still alive. So, so are we an extension of that history, or are we in a new phase? Because Ms. Graham was alive then, on the front line in the 70s at the convention movements. My, my, you know, there's many people, Fred, uh, Jesse Jackson, uh, Andrew Young, tens of thousands of people who, are, who never got famous from that era are still alive in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. So what is our relationship in the 21st century, in the current movement to them? And that's what I think this series is about. It is to put us in context. That's, if, so if I, if, if I ramble, I know I do. I go all over the place. I know I do. I, 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 I'm a New Yorker, and, and that's a bad habit I got. But if you listen to me, I say the same thing about five different times uh, eventually. And I tell my students that. If you listen to me, I repeat myself a lot on purpose because I know I go fast. So I, I repeat stuff. But... It, 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 you know, I've also tried to slow myself down to be disciplined today um, and, and do more, le- uh, you know, teaching and less uh, preaching uh, because I like to preach too, you know. Um, but I want you to appreciate the most important takeaway that I think, because at the end of all of my classes, uh, we ask our students, what, is your, what was your major takeaway from today's lecture? Like, how do you process all of the information you got? And the one thing I hope you take from you is the Reconstruction period was too short that it had within it the ingredients of black liberation, that Du Bois explains that black reconstruction um, was the result of black people's uh, 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 engagement with slavery as soldiers and as laborers, and they killed it themselves. And then after they do this, they have a decade and a decade or more of 
of hope and potential and opportunity coming to them throughout the country. And then a, a presidential election changes it from 1876 really until 2020. The 1876 presidential election changed our history permanently. One presidential election. That's why what happened in 2016 was so important, because Trump's presidency is the next 90 years. The question is, which, what's that next 90 years? But he is definitely, listen to me, Trump definitely set the next 90 years. Now, are we going to be apartheid? That's still on the table. Or are we going to be a, a multiracial democracy? But my point to you is, Reconstruction had these same propositions on the table in the 1870s. And we were sold out. And I'm telling you, black man, black woman, look, do not let them. I beg you, call the Democrats. Call their offices. Email them. Tweet them. Respond to them in tweets. Have a black campaign on the Democrats demanding that they put these people in jail, that they go after Trump, that they go after all of his aiders and abettors. Because people, if they don't punish these people, it's just like the Reconstruction period. Jefferson Davis, all of the Confederates, Robert E. Lee, they all retired and chilled out. Nobody went to prison for long. They became Americans. They all got into Congress. The racists took over Congress after the Civil War and dominated black life through Congress. You got this woman, uh, Taylor Greene, the QAnon. You had most of the Republican Congress to date support her. And she's talking QAnon and Jews uh, with laser beams starting fires in California. So I'm saying to you, black man and black woman, get your guns. I'm saying prepare your families. I'm saying engage politically. I'm saying you must call your congressman for the first time ever if you never have. Damn it, pick up the phone. We're in trouble. We're fighting to save democracy. What the heck you think Georgia was about? It ain't over. Please don't let them compromise on us. I'm, that's the main lesson of tonight, is after all of our breakthrough, they got together and made peace with North and South, and they sold us out for the next 90 years at least, you know, at least into the 1960s. That if they had fixed it right in the 1870s, there would have been no need for all of the struggles of black folk for the next 90 years that gave us the movements up into Martin Luther King. All of that from King back to um, Rutherford B. Hayes would have been unnecessary. From 1965 to 1876, everything that we went through, the lynchings, segregation, pogroms, um, uh, uh, convict leasing, um, sharecropping, all that hell we caught, back of the bus, the green, the green, the green, the, 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 you know, the, um, the green book, um, uh, you know, driving Miss Daisy, sitting in the back of the bus, all of that subservientness. We, we would have bypassed all of that struggle if they had just done the right thing in 1876. If the, if the, if the North, the, if the Republican Party that we listen to me, please, the party we belonged to, they were the ones that sold us out to the Democrats down south. It wasn't the racists who sold us out. It was our white friends. So if I sound desperate, if I sound desperate, it's because I'm afraid it's going to happen again. These folk like Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, I'm in Nancy Pelosi's district. I'm in California, and I still sound alarmed, don't I? I'm in San Francisco. She, she's a part of my university uh, community. And I'm telling you, 
These folks, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, will reconcile with these races so quick, you won't know what hit you. So you must demand that they hold on to every position that the racists hate in terms of health care, in terms of the, the $1.9 trillion, rather than accepting 600 or, or whatever they were talking about, billion, um, in terms of uh, prosecuting these criminals. You must demand that they prosecute Trump, that they prosecute all of these people, because I'm telling you, if they don't, the blueprint, the lesson for you and me, is that if, we, if they are able to work this out amongst themselves by not sending people to jail and by saying, oh, let's all reunite as a united country, that means the Negro is going to catch hell for the next 100 years of the 21st century. If they, if they find a way to make peace with Trump, with, where everything just sort of gets told, you know, Biden or Nancy comes and gives us a speech that tells us, let's all just unite then you have been sold out again, black people. Because that's what they did. The Republicans of Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln's party, sold us out in 1876. The Democrats can sell us out in 2021 after all we've done for them in, since 2016, really since Obama ran. But really, you know, more specifically, more recently, since 2016. One and two in every election that's happened since 2016, we were the main anti-Trump people in voting, Period. In America, uh, compared to everybody else from 2016 to 2021, the number one group is the black group. And you saw it finally play out in Georgia, it, where it was uh, the cliffhanger. The cliffhanger was, was you know, was also the, the, the reality. But the truth is, everything that happened before Georgia's, you know, final vote uh, last month um, was pretty much a, a, a pretext to that. So what we need to do... In, in terms of understanding the, and studying the Reconstruction period and then the subsequent periods that happen, is everything that happens after this happens because it was never done right during this. And the Reconstruction of, of America was really the – listen to this very carefully. It was really an attempt to create a whole new way of America from a black way instead of the white racist way. Let me explain. I explained to you carefully and calmly that there was a genealogy running from the American Revolution to the Jefferson Davis side, uh, the gray side of the, of the Confederacy, that that's the real children of the American Revolution, not Abraham Lincoln, and that the American Revolution was a, was a pro-slavery, trying-to-keep slavery revolution. In, in 1776, the 4th of July, that was for slavery because the British had freed their slaves and they created Sierra Leone, and they were doing it all over the world in their kingdom, and the Americans said, hell no. And so the Americans fought to perpetuate slavery. That's why slavery survives the American Revolution. I've made all of this clear to you tonight. And then you come up to the American, you come up to the Reconstruction period, and black people have a window opening, and it is shut, not by the racist Democrats who got defeated, but by black people's friends who won. Let me say that again. It wasn't the racist Democrats in the 1876 election who lost, who, who, who sold us out. It was Abraham Lincoln's party that we supported, and they won. They, so, so our party won, and then our party sold us out for the next 90 years. Do you hear me? Lincoln's party is the one that sold us out in 1876, not our enemies. So if anybody's going to sell us out in 2020, it's Chuck Schumer, it's Nancy Pelosi, 
It's the Democrats. It's not the racists. MAGA ain't selling you out. How the hell MAGA going to sell you out? MAGA hates you. MAGA can't sell you out. MAGA hates you. The Democrats will sell us out. Unless we use the power we've been seeing us demonstrate in every way. All these black women who've been running around talking about we the backbone of the Democrat Party, well, damn it, they better stand up and be the backbone and make sure the Democrats don't sell us out historically again. Because if not, the lesson of Reconstruction is that black people will be stuck throughout 20, the 21st century in, in more movements. So right now we're in Black Lives Matter. We're 30 to 40 years after black power. 20 years after hip-hop, right, thought itself a movement. Um, within, within the next 20 years, we're going to have another black movement. Unless we do it, unless we fix this right now, America's future is apartheid, people. That's what Trump has laid bare for America. You choose you day, this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, Trump says we serving fascism, racism, apartheid. Now, the rest of y'all, y'all decide what y'all want to do. But this is not settled yet right now. This is up in the air. You think it's settled. It's not. It's up in the air what America is going to be going forward for the next 75 years. And it, like in 1876, one presidential election, 2016, has had this effect. And now the question is, do black people allow their party to sell them out again as a compromise to make white people feel good about each other again? Or do we stand up and say, you cannot do this again? You did it to us before, and Abraham Lincoln was trying to show by ignoring the – listen to this. When Abraham Lincoln signs the Emancipation Proclamation, he ignores Philadelphia 1776. I mean, I mean 1787. He ignores Philadelphia where the Constitution brought slavery into the new country. Abraham Lincoln don't even acknowledge it in the Emancipation Proclamation. Abraham Lincoln says four score and 20 years ago, he goes back mathematically to 1776. Not 1787, an 11-year difference. And that 11-year difference in what Abraham Lincoln does with the Emancipation Proclamation, listen, Abraham Lincoln ignored the Philadelphia Convention, where the Constitution was born, in the, American, uh, in the Emancipation Proclamation. He, never, he references the Declaration of Independence instead. So what I'm saying to you, that subtlety right there, those two documents, one is the American Constitution. It's full of racism, slavery. And it's the genealogy between the racists at the American Revolution and the racists at the Civil War. So Abraham Lincoln wants to break it. This is why you need to understand what Gerald Horn is saying about who, who, the, who the American Revolutionary, you know, who the, when American racists say that they're connected to the founding, they're the right ones. Jefferson Davis was right. You know, the racists of the 50s and 60s, when they talk about their country, they're right. That's the connection. That's the genealogy that goes back to the American Revolution. Uh, to the framing, to the Philadelphia Convention. But Lincoln very carefully, after the war, creates a new America. And that new America is based on 1776 Declaration of Independence, not 1787 U.S. Constitution. The Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And from that moment on, that document has been the most important document to the black movement throughout our history. It's the black manifesto of all time, the Declaration of Independence. We've meant it more than any group. We've made it more, mean more. When white people say it, they don't mean it. We all be two to be self-evident that all men are created, we equal. Now, 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 do I need to elaborate on that? I mean, think about that. When they say it, did they mean it? If they meant it, then what am I talking about? 
So obviously they, they never meant it. We were the ones. This is what the, book, the, the, the 1619 New York Times project is about. When that sister says year one in America is 1619, she wasn't trying to be historically accurate. She was being rhetorical. She was saying, if you really want to understand the origins of America, the new America the, the, that, that killed the slavery America in the Civil War and uh, American Revolutionary period, there's a black America that was born out of that with Abraham Lincoln. So the new genealogy of America runs from Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s to Martin Luther King movement in the 1960s, not the American Revolution, uh, not uh, going back from the, um, uh, the, um, the Civil War to the, um, to the American Revolution. So Lincoln is saying, out of the ashes of Civil War, we're going to build a new America. And we're going to use the Declaration of Independence and black people to, to, to birth a new America. We're killing the old America. We're killing the, the, the Declaration. We're killing the Constitution. We're killing the framers. We're killing what they did. We're killing the America the framers gave us. And Abraham Lincoln becomes the second George Washington in this motif, Ms. Graham. So to keep, it, to keep people on my page where I am with this, just imagine through all of what I'm saying, put Abraham Lincoln as the new George Washington. And then you can maybe see it better. Because George Washington was the racist, and he was the leader of the racial moment I'm talking about, from, eight, from 1776 to the eight, you know, uh, up, up to Civil War. That's George Washington, right? He's, there, he's the first president of that racist America that was born in the Revolution. I'm saying the Civil War, where black people took up guns and did a strike, that becomes the second America. A second America is born, and black people are the most important part of it. Time to wrap up. Okay, and so as, as I wrap up, as, and Ms. Graham wants me, I need to wrap up because you know I'll, I'll, my, I'll keep my classes, my classes, and then I keep going talking to my students for about an hour after. Kid you not, that happened today. But I'll stop here just to say that the betrayal of the Civil War is a lesson for us. The betrayal of Reconstruction is what we should mobilize politically today. Everywhere we go, we should be reminding them: no sellouts. Y'all not selling us out again. You did this before, and we never got over it. We never got over 1876, black people. No matter what we've done since, it's all because they did not do us right in 1876. Martin Luther King happens because 1876 happened. If they did 1876 right, there's no need for Harlem. There's no need for Reconstruction. I mean, there's no need for all of what we do in subsequent movements. So, so that's the lesson for this week. Thank you so much for your time and your attention. I hope you take notes. If you want to follow up with me, uh, if I went too fast or something and you want clarification, you can email me at taylorj, T-A-Y-L-O-R-J, at U-S-F-C-A dot E-D-U, taylorj at U-S-F-C-A dot E-D-U. Uh, you, please feel free to email me, and we can even go back and forth as long as you need to to get clarification, because uh, I know talking doesn't always uh, allow you to hear um, things, and I know I talk really fast. Thank you, Ms. Graham, so much for this opportunity. I look forward to next Thursday and, uh, and for our second installment.
Thank you for joining us in this first installment of a four-part lecture, The History of Black Political Movements in America. I'm Janice Graham, and we appreciate and are grateful for the brilliance and genius of Dr. James Taylor, who shares his knowledge, his passion, and his keen analysis and insight through years of study experience and academic leadership. Join us for the remaining three parts of this lecture series. Each Thursday, February 11th, 18th, and 25th, 8 p.m., here at Our Common Ground, where for 34 years we have been the university on the air. Join us on Saturday night coming up, February 6th, on Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. We'll be talking with Dr. Shirley Whitaker about lynching as part of Black History. Hey. 